Hello, readers. David Epstein is a New York Times best-selling author whose books include the 2013 title The Sports Gene and the book we're talking about today, Range, Why Generalist, Triumph in a Specialized World. David, thank you for the time. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Pleasure, pleasure to be on. David, what was your goal in writing Range? Well, pretty much I, I think this this issue of how broad or specialized to be in development, you know, whether you're trying to become a, an executive or an athlete, is a question that's important to everyone, but usually only taken on with pure intuition, right, or single stories. And I wanted to look through sort of the body of, of scientific research on the topic and hopefully ground that uh, that discussion in some evidence so that we could make it more productive and interesting for everyone who wants to engage in it. What was the starting point for your research? Uh, it definitely sports. So my first book, The Sports Gene, brought me into a debate at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. So, uh, you know, co-founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets to, to talk about science and data analytics in sports. And I, I criticized some of Malcolm Gladwell's writing and the science underlying the so-called 10,000-hour rule. And so we were invited there to debate. And, you know, he'd written about the importance of early specialization in, in youth sports. And so I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated at the time and said, let me look at what the data has to say. And it turns out that in almost when scientists track athletes in almost every sport, what they see is that the future elites have what they call a sampling period where they play a wide variety of sports. They, they gain these broad general skills. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so when he came off the stage, Malcolm was sort of like, you know, you got me on that. That doesn't fit with my hypothesis. And I sort of came to view that that sports information that sort of starts the book as an analogy that I would use to then uh, jump off into other domains of, of the work world. So I don't know how many conversations you've had with Malcolm Gladwell since then, but has he adjusted his 10,000-hour rule to maybe uh, 10,000 hours of physical activity versus a specific physical activity, while eventually, once you get closer to that 10,000-hour mark, then specializing uh, once you do get a little bit beyond the prepubescent years? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, we had a lot of conversations. He, he, we were both national-level runners at one point, and uh, he, we became running buddies. We would argue on our own time. But actually, we were just invited back to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in March, and these are both on YouTube. Uh, and toward the end, he says, you know, I, I now believe I conflated two ideas, the idea that it takes a lot of practice to get good at something, which is true, with the idea that in order to become good at, you know, X thing, you should do X and only X from as early as possible, mm. which I now believe is false. And so, he's, so we're sort of on the same ground now where he nuanced his view to say you want to go broad early um, and, and specialize late. If you do the reverse, you really curtail your, your long-term development. David, what is the Flynn effect and why is it important to your most recent writings? Uh, the Flynn effect is this finding that uh, tests on IQ scores have been going up um, since early in the 20th century, all around the world at a rate of about three points per decade. And not only are they going up, but they're going up on the most abstract parts of tests. So this one test that was created so that you, it wouldn't be based on anything you learned in school or in life called the Raven's Progressive Matrices, where it's just a series of abstract designs and one's missing and you have to deduce a pattern and fill it in, right? This was supposed to be the one that if Martians landed on Earth, it, it could tell you how smart they are because you don't need to have learned anything. <laughs> Turns out this is actually the one where there's been the most change over time. And that's because as we've moved to a more 
uh, modern complex work that requires a huge amount of abstraction. I mean, you think of the things we do, we have to do what's called knowledge transfer all the time. We take things we learned and we have to apply them to problems or work situations that we haven't seen before. We have to, you know, have, have knowledge of things that we haven't directly experienced and we do that through abstract thinking. Uh, we have to work with technology where we're not given rules and we just have to do some of them and, and figure it out. And that has caused this shift of the way we think to make us more adapted to a work world where we have these broader mental skills of abstraction and conceptualization that allow us really to move between challenges and move between jobs in a way that that our ancestors couldn't. I loved how you shared that ideology with Flynn, that, that he was such a big believer in teaching a student how to think before being taught what to think about. Has that changed at all how you go about thinking about things or how you just think about the process of thinking? Absolutely. I mean, I was... You know, before I became a, a writer, I was like living in a tent in the Arctic training to be a, a scientist, a mm-hmm. geologist. And I realized in retrospect, like, you know, I got a, I, I didn't go all the way to my PhD, but I dropped out of, you know, I left a fancy school with my master's degree. And I realized in retrospect that I had been specialized so quickly uh, that I never learned how scientific thinking was actually supposed to work. So I have data published in scientific journals that I'm quite sure is wrong now, not because I was doing anything malicious, but because I hadn't been taught how scientific thinking was supposed to work at all. And I only learned that later as a journalist investigating poor scientific research. And so, you know, I kind of went back and looked at some of the tests that Flynn used to gauge these kinds of critical thinking and and started working on my own, basically. Hmm. How did a group of mangled women orphaned as babies by the prostitutes who birthed them, become some of the most heralded musicians on the planet in the 16 through 1700s. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so I have a chapter on music, which I felt was necessary, because I think music along with sports are probably the domains that people most associate with early specialization. And these these women, so, uh, you know, Venice in the 17th and 18th century was the center of musical innovation, and they had a problem, they also had a vibrant, uh, sex industry, and they had a problem with orphan girls ending up being dropped in, in the canals. And so they started these sort of social welfare institutions where if you drop off a baby and it fits in, you know, it's like the, the check on, the check carry on luggage thing at the airport, if the baby fits in this certain box, basically, you could drop them off and, and they would raise the girl forever. And they wanted to teach them life skills and they would incentivize them for learning different skills. And as people started donating instruments to these institutions, the girls were uh, told they should try to learn all of them. And so they would learn to play this incredible array of instruments, you know, largely on their own time. And they got so good that the people who ran this institution started to realize when they would play, people would donate huge amounts of money. And pretty soon the most famous composers in the world started vying to be able to compose specifically for them because there was nowhere else in the world you could have this sort of musical laboratory where you had these women and girls who could play every single instrument. And, and one of the composers who won that right was Antonio Vivaldi, whose, whose Four Seasons is probably you know as close to a pop hit as 300-year-old music still gets. People have probably heard it, even if they don't know. I think a mashup of it with some, with some Disney songs has like 100 million views on, on YouTube. <laughs> um, but basically, the, the way what these women did was they started broad before focusing. They learned every instrument. They, they literally learned every instrument that the institution had. And sometimes that was dozens. And we're not even sure what some of them are anymore because the names are left. But, but we don't really know what they refer to. So sort of the exact opposite of the of the kind of tiger mother approach. If you remember the book, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, where she she assigns her daughter violin and then presides over five, six hours of practice a day and 
everyone remembers that part, but nobody remembers the part later in the book where her, her daughter says, you picked it, not me, and quits. So it actually <laughs> didn't work out that well. Yeah, it's a very, uh, very great analogy there. Now, there are a lot of examples of great musicians who weren't interested in music at an early age. And when they did yeah. finally want to learn, they did so in a sort of self-taught manner. Do you have a favorite example of a musician who fits this mold? I mean, for me, I, I like... Um, uh, Duke Ellington in that mold, just because I think he's such a uniquely American composer, and and his style changed. Like if you listen to the stuff he did from the '60s, you wouldn't even recognize him as the same musician from the '30s. And he's actually one of the few uh, jazz musicians and composers who actually did have the offer of formal lessons when he was a kid, when he was about seven or eight. There was a teacher with the name Marietta Klinkscales. That's a pretty good name. Um, <laughs> and after three weeks, he didn't like it, and he quit. He was more into, he was focused on baseball. And he was a good and, he, and drawing and painting. He actually got an art scholarship that he turned down to college. And then about eight years later, he hears ragtime, you know, this, this new music for the first time. And it inspires him. He goes home and opens the, opens the piano for the first time in seven or eight years and just starts trying to imitate by himself. And sort of he left records saying, you know, when I was allowed to pursue it myself, it was slow. But that's what worked for me, not being told exactly how to do it. And, you know, he became one of the most creative composers in history and even till the end of his life. When he composed, you know, he was composing things for Carnegie Hall, and he had copyists who would help translate his sort of personal shorthand notation into into music that others could read, since he was still sort of using his own system and never really learned it totally formally. So there is a, uh, a current example that is a lot like that story. He's a guy who's making a profound impact on music, who's from here in Austin. His name is Gary Clark Jr., and I knew him back in the day before he really blew up, and it was the same thing for him, where sometime, I think in his early teenage years, he started to get interested in playing guitar. He never took formal classes. He would literally just watch Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton and some of the other greats play and try and imitate what they were doing by watching them on the screen, and now he has his own unique style that sets him apart from a lot of the other people out there. Exactly, and again, that's exactly the learning like a baby thing, right? Is you imitate first, you get exposed broadly, and if you want to be able to use those skills creatively, um, that, that's that's the that's the order in which you want to do those things, even if it seems like you're falling behind early on. So you have to. I mean, that's one of the one of the sub things of of range is. Sometimes the things that you can do that cause the most rapid apparent short-term progress can actually can actually undermine your longer-term development. And that speaks to this notion that it is a healthy thing to allow a young developing mind to make mistakes and find that conclusion on their own without your assistance. But where is that line where it's okay to actually provide some of the, of, of that assistance? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there, I think it, I think it depends on the domain particularly. And I think you sort of can ramp some of that up slowly going from unstructured to, to sort of lightly structured to more structured. And I think the best, some of the things that like the best coaches do is they set up environments that have their own kind of feedback, right? That where someone can pursue a challenge and they don't really need to be told if they're doing well or not. I mean, that's something that happens when you're trying to imitate music, you actually get automatic feedback because you know, if you, if you sort of did it right or you didn't. And so I think part of the trick is kind of setting up those environments that have types of built-in feedback. When, when it comes to the more amorphous work world, you know, places like the Army have had a lot of success with programs that they call talent-based branching is one of them, for example, mm-hmm. where they used to take someone and say, okay, here's your career path, go up or out. These are their, their highest potential officers particularly. And they were having bad retention with that. And so well, first they started trying to throw money at people and, and the people were going to stay anyway. So getting those who were going to leave. 
left anyway, and that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain, but um, didn't change retention at all. Then they started talent-based branching where they say, okay, we're going to pair you with a coach. You're going to try this career track. You'll reflect on how it fits you with your coach. You know, your coach will say, well, is this playing to your strengths? Is this playing to your weaknesses? And then you'll try another one, another, and another two. And as you go through this with your coach, you get to sort of continual feedback about how it fits you, you know, identifying what your challenges are and what your strengths are. And, and then you triangulate better what, what economists call match quality, the degree of fit between your abilities and interests and the work that you do. And so, so that's sort of how it works more in the work world where you get someone who kind of becomes your, your coach and helping you identify your challenges and strengths and weaknesses as you sort of try to find out where you fit. David, what is interleaving? Interleaving is one of the very few methods of learning things that are supported by cognitive psychology. Like I get, because I've written about this stuff, I get, uh, you know, press releases every day about learning hacks, and almost none of them are really supported by science. And interleaving (laughs) is one that really is. And what interleaving is, and, and this works for physical skills or cognitive skills, usually in sports, people call it mixed or variable practice where basically you don't want to be doing the same thing over and over, essentially. You want to mix up whatever you're doing. And so here's an example of a, of a recent study that came out that is kind of would have included if it had come out in time. But a group of seventh-grade classrooms were randomly assigned to learn math in different ways. Some of the classrooms kept learning the way they always do, which is called blocked practice, where you take problem type you know, A, and then you do problem type A, 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 and then type B, 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 and C, C, C. Interleaving is when you take those all and you just mix them up randomly. So you're not seeing, you're not allowed to execute the same procedures twice in a row. Instead, you have to try to match a type of strategy to the structure of the problem because you can't just count on seeing the same problem over and over. And those, those, the kids who learn that way, they are more frustrated early on. They sometimes rate their own learning and their teachers as worse. And then the test comes around and they absolutely destroy the other group. So the, the difference was like moving a kid from the 50th to the 80th percentile, essentially. Um, My gosh. What you want to do with anything you want to learn, yeah, yeah, massive. And, you know, I picked that part of the curve because it makes it sound a little more fancy. It's, a, <laughs> it's a less of a move at the top. But, um, but it's a huge, huge difference. And so anything you want to learn, instead of doing blocked practice where you're studying the same thing over and over, you're trying to memorize the same thing, whatever it is, you want to mix it all together like you're shuffling a deck of cards, and it will be more frustrating but that's what forces you to build these broader conceptual models where you're matching a strategy to a type of problem instead of just executing procedures. And it also has a massive effect on memory. So if you need to memorize stuff, mix it all up. Yeah, it's like keeping you on your toes versus allowing you to sleepwalk through whatever that issue is. That makes total sense to me. Now, this book reminded me of something that I feel like I read or heard about a decade ago that had to do with the happiest people having something like five or six different careers in their lives. Have you heard anything along those lines? Is there any truth to that? Yeah, there definitely is truth to that. I mean, and and one thing, you know, just I was just looking at some research by LinkedIn on a half million members, you know, they have these amazing databases, looking at what were the best predictors of who would go on to become an executive. And one of the best predictors was the number of different job functions that someone has worked across mm. in their career previously. So each different job function saved them about three years of experience. Um, but even, you know, but I wrote about this in the context of something called the Dark Horse Project, which was done at Harvard and was looking at people uh, essentially who find fulfillment in their careers. A lot of them are also very materially successful, but not all of them, but they're, they're all fulfilled in their work. And the reason it didn't start out being called the Dark Horse Project, 
they the researchers named it that because when they would bring these people in for their informational interviews, like just to be introduced to the project, they would all say, well, you know, don't tell people to do what I did because I started in this other thing, you know, or I went <laughs> to start in law school. It wasn't the right fit. And so I, I went to this other thing and that wasn't right either. So I tried to other and, you know, eventually I got lucky and, and found the thing that really works for me. And, and, you know, almost 90% of the people, there were some people who took a linear path, but it was a small minority. And so all of these people would see themselves as having come out of nowhere and say, well, don't tell people to do what I did. And so they all viewed themselves as dark horses, which is why the, the researchers called it the dark horse project. But it turns out this is absolutely the norm for people who find fulfillment in their work. They have to actually bounce around a little in search of, of that match quality or, or the, the work that best fits them, which, which, by the way, has an enormous impact not only on their sense of fulfillment, but on their performance and on their behavioral characteristics. So like as one of these researchers told me, when you get fit, it looks like grit, meaning if you get people in work that fits them really well, suddenly they'll have better work ethic and resilience than they did, you know, just previously once you get them in the, in a better situation. That is a fascinating concept. Absolutely. David, is there a scenario where early specialization makes sense? Yeah, I, I think definitely. So there are certain um, what psychologists call kind learning environments. And these are situations where uh, information is all clear. You know, you're usually not grappling with human behavior so much. Um, th- there are clear rules and patterns are repetitive. So the work next year will look like the work last year, basically. And so for one example is, is chess. A uh, huge store of previous data. Rules always stay the same. The grandmaster's advantage is pattern recognition. And so if you haven't started studying those patterns by the age of 12, your chance of reaching international master status, which is one down from grandmaster, drops from one in four to one in 55. So you have to be doing it. The, the only the problem is because chess is, you know, because it's based on repetitive patterns, that means it's very amenable to specialization. That also is why it's so easy to automate. So in most areas, you probably don't want to be in the spot where specialization works really well because those are the things that are most easy to automate. Um, mm. And so most of the sort of repetitive pattern-based tasks that were the basis of industrial economy um, you know, are the most in danger of getting automated. I think there's an argument to be made. Um, some of the people who study golf view it as almost an industrial task where you're trying to do a very similar thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. So I, I think... There's potentially an argument to be made for early specialization in golf. I know, like, you know, Gary Woodland and, and, and Brooks Kepka are, are, are breaking that mold um, right now. But I think, and there's kind of a weird lack of science on golf, but I think you could make the argument that it, 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 it at least wouldn't be damaging in golf. I think you could make that argument uh, reasonably. And you uh, do open your book with the Tiger versus Roger Federer comparison, talking about both how both those guys went through very separate paths to achieve greatness. And, of course, Tiger uh, did have that golf club in his hands as a toddler. He was uh, appearing on late-night talk shows showing just how good he was yeah. at the sport. And years later, he turns into one of the greats. And there were certainly trials and tribulations within his life. Perhaps some of those... Uh, affected by this idea that uh, he was in and around so much golf 
early on into his early adulthood as well. Boy, we're at the end of our time right now. Uh, don't have uh, the necessary time to get to all the different subjects in this book. Comic books come up at one point. So do the Girl <laughs> Scouts. Uh, so do uh, does Nintendo as an example of a business uh, diversifying to survive, causing it to eventually thrive. But I did want to ask you one more question, uh, David. Uh, near the end of your book, you write that the question that you set out to explore in range was how to capture and cultivate the power of breadth diverse experience, and interdisciplinary exploration within systems that increasingly demand hyper-specialization. Now, the book is your answer to that question, but now that you have not only finished the subject matter, written the book, and given countless uh, interviews about the subject matter, is there a simple way for you to answer that question? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I think think the easiest thing that applies to the largest number of people is to never stop your own hunt for match quality. So like, don't Mm -hmm. assume that you've gotten, you know, you're at the job that you're going to stay at forever because actually you change, right? Something I talk about in the book is the end of history illusion. This fact that in psychology that we all recognize we've changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then think we're not going to change much in the future and we're wrong at every single time point in life. And so if you keep hunting for work that fits you while your personality is changing, you're going to end up doing a bunch of different things. And that, in fact, is what most of the people who came out with breadth in the book did. They didn't say, oh, I'm going to go be a generalist. They said, I'm going to hunt for things that interest me and that that fit my abilities. And by doing that, they zigzag and end up with this with this breadth. So I sort of keep a. Uh, you know, what I call a book of small experiments where I at least every other month sort of force myself to um, explore some new interest or try some new skill or learn about some new area of work. And then I go back in, into the book and reflect on it, sort of how I did when I was a, when I was a science grad student, being a, a scientist of myself. And that sort of keeps me branching out continually. And every once in a while I hit on something that becomes really important to me and, you know, and, and helps my work. So I think that's something I've found really valuable. And, and I plan on continuing this sort of zigzagging hunt for match quality uh, for, my, for my entire life. And by doing that, you end up accumulating this breadth. You know, like, I mean, for me, the best thing I did was having gone to grad school in geology, because then when I arrived at Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker, these my rather ordinary science skills were suddenly totally extraordinary in the context of a sports magazine. So I sort of zoomed from temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer really quickly, very much because I had this oddball skills that I brought in, and that turns out often to be extremely valuable. That's very cool to hear about, and another great example as to why stepping outside of your comfort zone is such an important thing for everybody to do. Don't allow yourself to get complacent in life because uh, it leads to a life of boredom and uh, not nearly as much happiness or success. He is David Epstein, uh, best-selling author of the book The Sports Gene and the new one as well, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. You can Get it now wherever books are sold. Give him a follow on Twitter at David Epstein. David, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed it, man. No, pleasure is mine. You obviously read the book very thoroughly. I'm impressed. All right. Thank you very much, David. Uh, I did, and uh, I am certain that I will read the next one that you come out with because I love the sports gene as well.